Welcome to Sourced, a podcast about the art of audience engagement at a time when competition for attention has never been greater. What works, what doesn't work, and what's changing. Sourced is brought to you by 55 Comms. We've been telling stories, learning about audiences, and helping clients for more than 25 years. Michael Knight describes himself as an adolescentologist. That's because he specialised in working with hundreds of thousands of adolescents, mostly in schools, across more than three decades. Michael's the founder of the Australian arm of Peer Power. During his youth work journey, Michael has focused on the likes of classroom and large-scale seminar presentations, crisis counselling, adventure therapy, which you can call camping as well, organisational management and development. Michael says he's still learning, but he's learned enough to talk to us about the experiences with today's young generation. My name is Michael Crutcher. Welcome to Sourced. Michael Knight, it's a great pleasure to have you on our Sourced podcast. I know we've had many chats over the years about many things, but I'm sure I'll learn a lot today. I want to start with your business, Peer Power. Tell us what Peer Power does. Okay, uh, the, the, I'm going to answer it in two ways. The history of my role working with young people was originally starting to work metaphorically um, with an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff dealing with people that had jumped off the cliff of life and were self-harming and did that for about two or three years and realised two things. We've got to run an ambulance service at the bottom of the cliff. There are people who do jump off and they need help. But I just realised that wasn't my sustainable world and I had this suspicion, what if we climb the cliff and put a sign up that said you don't have to jump. What if 50 metres back from the cliff we put another sign up saying warning there's a cliff? What if, what if we actually then turned around and looked inland and went, what is it we could tell young people that will help them live life rather than, you know, get frustrated by it? And so my, the last probably 28, 30 odd years of my professional career has been working proactively in schools trying to help young people with life skills, leadership, character education, workshops. So I, my day-to-day is going into a high school, speaking to a cohort of students, so anything from, say, 350 or so down to a small group of maybe a class size of 20 or so, um, and just working with them on whatever that topic that the school wants us to address under those broad umbrellas. So let's go back to the start, Michael, before peer power. How did a tradesman from Western Australia end up on the other side of the country with this business that's now so established working with young people? Uh, Can we use the word deportation? (laughs) Um, Does that account? Uh, uh, The uh, the Charles Court moat, he wanted to put up the borderline and secede from the nation. That's right. I was one of the rejects that got kicked out of (laughs) WA and and, I had to find a home and Queensland took me in. So... uh, now, I, there was, I was working for a youth agency at the time in Perth and they uh, gave me a job offer in Queensland and I, I was newly married. It was a grand adventure and my wife and I went, let's go. And so we, we uh, back then, we bussed over to Sydney. Yeah. Our car was trucked to Sydney and then we took a couple of days driving from Sydney to Queensland 
And I still remember the moment. I only had this the other day. I was coming up the M1, and if you know where the new Mount Gravatt bus stations are, if you're yes. coming on the coming from the south to the north, there's a very gentle rise in the freeway, and at the very peak of the rise is your first ever glance of Brisbane city skyline. Yes, another one. And that was the very first time we had seen Brisbane, and we kept driving and pulled up to our office and. Have been here ever since. Haven't been able to get rid of us. So uh, it's uh, it's great to be here. Well, that was a geographical move from Perth to Brisbane. What about the career move? Why did you go from being a tradesperson to this role? Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, carpentry was a very simple thing. I, I left school at the end of year ten on the advice of my principal, who said, "Don't come back." <laughs> and uh, that was great advice for me as a fifteen-year-old. I was a feral kid, and I was not a traditional learner and and I just couldn't cope. And my dad was a very pragmatic man, which was, if you're not at school, son, get a job. So he didn't care that I didn't do year 11 and 12. I mean, he only went halfway through year nine. Right. And so he he left school then. So I, at 15, you have limited job options and I applied for many trades and got one as a carpenter and did it. Loved it, was very good at it, won a whole lot of awards, actually got rated uh, sounds a bit of a brag, but I actually was rated as the second best apprentice in all of WA in my group and uh, was fantastic. I, I found in those four years I grew up a lot, realised I was good at carpentry, realised I loved doing it, but also realised I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. Right. And during that time we'd been involved in building some schools and I think I just started looking above the parapet and looked around at different things and realised, you know what, I think it's... I need to change a career and just wanted to start working with young people. So that was that that was kind of the catalyst from one career into the next. So over these years that you've worked with school students, Michael, you've kept getting older, but the students you work with haven't. Has that been a challenge to continue to connect with them as you grow and they stay the same age? It, it, it is a genuine challenge. It does not come naturally. But the driver is a, a, a philosophy that I have is I always constantly ask myself about the nature and the character of the people I'm talking to. So I, I don't walk in thinking I'm the guru or I'm the expert. I walk in from a perspective of I've got a couple of clues. I've figured out which way is up and what's hot and what's not. But my job is to actually try to figure out who is the group I'm talking to, what is the language that they speak, and how do I translate what I've got to them? They're digital natives. I'm a digital immigrant. There's a radical difference. Um, they intuitively understand this stuff. I've had to learn a second language. Um, you know, I mean, I grew up on rotary phones, and, you know, with sparks flying out of them, and you hated people with zeros in their number because it was the longest number to dial. You know, um, now I don't even know my phone number. It's just auto-call. You know, Siri, call my phone. Uh, so, yeah, I think... One of the things I think is really interesting is it's no different to if you are cross-culturally working with anybody, how do you learn some of the basics of their language and how do you speak it and acknowledge up front? I mean, I call myself an adolescentologist and I say to students straight up, adolescent is the people group I'm dealing with, ologist is the study of. So I'm here to learn with and from you. Now, with is because I have something to bring. From is because you have your own inherent values. So how do we work together? And that, that's always a fun process. 
So when you and I were younger, Michael, we didn't have Xboxes around to play computer games on with friends. Of course, no smartphones and no social media. So I guess the older generations to us didn't face the same circumstances as now when we communicate with a younger generation that has all of these things. How has that changed the landscape in which you communicate with today's young people? One of the most fascinating things, again, depending on the age of people who are listening, if you ask some of the great historical markers, uh, where were you when JFK was shot? Where were you when man landed on the moon? Where were you when? You know, fill in those great historical markers. I think in time, people are going to look back at the year, you know, 2007, when the smartphone came out, 2006-ish is when Facebook was starting and then kicking off and that whole social social media thing sort of developed, that is going to be a defining point historically, uh, pre and post. And one of the biggest issues now is because of the access to the instant now, and then you're in the world of media, the, the, the algorithms that are going on behind the scenes that allow the user to think, I'm in control, when in actual fact they're being fed what they've fed the system. Um, you know, I mean, once upon a time, as you well know, being the editor of the Courier Mail, you know, you could write letters into the editor who would then read which ones do I want, mm-hmm. and then they would put them in, and there'd be some sort of filtering system going on for that. But it, and I love your thoughts. I think it, that would have been much broader than the way social media operates today, which is extraordinarily narrow. So for a lot of young people, they search their socials, find what's being fed them and would very much hold the view that that is a majority view without any actual data to support that. It would just simply be, you're being fed, this is what everybody thinks. There's some recent data out that it's around 70 to 80% of people now sleep with their mobile phone within an arm's distance. But the scary stat is 30 to 40% and growing rapidly sleep with the phone in their bed, not at arm's distance, in their bed. So the FOMO dynamic, the fear of missing out, is massive. The, the no longer being con- physically connected to my phone is a massive issue um, and, uh, amongst young people. So the, the digital world is, a, is a, an extension and it actually has become very much their domain. It's their world. I, I was watching a movie the other day and there was a guy, two characters in the show, and somebody was saying to this older person, you know, you're not, you're not paying attention to this, you're not doing something like this. And he made the observation, yeah, but what if it's wrong? And I, I just remember sitting there going, I love what social media can bring, but I think we've got to teach people, how do you discern but when it's wrong? J- just because it's there, just because it's flooding, just because it's online, doesn't mean it's true. And we all know the data, you know, fake news travels at five to seven times the speed Mm. of truth Mm. uh, and all of that. So I think helping young people see and discern that is critical. So, Michael, we're talking about all of these things that have changed uh, from when uh, you and I were younger to now. But And this is a sweeping statement, so feel free to approach it in any way. But is life easier or is life tougher now for young people? You know... um, I'm 58. I think one of the, I've never heard a more truer statement. A friend of mine who's in his 80s now said so beautifully 
The only reason the good old days are the good old days is we've forgotten the bad bits. So I, I don't think our generation to this generation, I, I reject the easier or harder. I think each generation is its own with its own dynamics and its own uniquenesses. And I just love the fun of how are we going to address this? How do we deal with this? Where will this go? I mean, I've got grandkids now and I love looking into their faces thinking, where will they take this? What, what will this mean? Where will they go? Um, and I just think to myself, you know, I'm fascinated by it. I'm an optimist. I, I genuinely think, you know, there's, there's, I'm a realist in terms of you can see what's really happening, but I, I choose to look at the bright side and go, I think we can actually move forward here and there's ways we can do it. So when you're out and talking to school principals, as you do a lot, and these are people, and not just school principals, teachers, school leaders, they get such great insights into what's happening in schools. What are the things they talk to you about now in general, things they like to get your advice on or give you insights into? What are you seeing around the place? Well, that's another really big sweeping statement. <laughs> you know, school to school... Uh, one of the things that's happened is schools have become very much tribal. They're very independent. Um, government schools are independent public schools. Uh, even the term independent is up front. So each school, it, it's dangerous to brushstroke schools as one homogenous group. Then within the school, you've got the different tribes of year levels. Um, and so I think what's fascinating is we... The internet has actually forced us, in one sense, it's globally connected us and it simultaneously flung us into further remote regions of the metaverse um, where people are very much tribally unique. So I, I, I think one size fits all approach to anything these days is almost destined to fail. The key is how do you always constantly indigenize? So their questions are relating to that. How do we understand this generation who are different to this generation? What are the universals that translate no matter what? I mean, basic manners translate no matter what. Uh, looking people in the eye, shake someone by the hand. Um, COVID safe, of course, fist bump, whatever you've got to <laughs> do. But, I mean, just those fundamental human interactions, they're never going to go away. About the motivational side too, I'm interested and we do a fair bit of work through sport and professional sport and people who say that you can't talk and motivate younger people in the way you could a generation ago. You know, the famous, uh, you know, the coach would uh, shout at the players yeah. and motivate them, give them a clip over the ear or something like that, that old school motivation which, you know, the modern coaches say that doesn't work anymore. You've got to speak to your players in a different way that you, know, you can get them motivated but no way can you do it in the old way yeah. is that true do you think of of what you come across when you deal with young people and and if so what's changing because i mean it was standard when i was a, a young yeah. person playing sport where you know if you did something bad there's probably a fair chance you get a spray and a decent spray yeah uh, and that was supposed to motivate you but i can't imagine that that would work in too many environments these days. Yeah, I mean, when we started handing out gold badges to everyone who turned up, uh, we were doomed. <laughs> I'm just sorry, we were doomed. I totally don't buy that philosophy at all. But I do think one of the things that really matters if you want to try to understand this young generation, but I think this would have been true of any generation, we have to understand the difference between positional respect. Now, in my era, in your era, the coach was the position, 
they were in charge and they yelled at you and you just said yes or you're on the bench or you're out of the team. It was as simple as that. So the rules were very, very simple. You just understood he was the boss, he was the coach or she was the boss, she was the coach and she just told you do it and you did it. End of story. But then there is actually earned respect. And, you know, when somebody's earned the respect and they come along... So the coach who's doing this, you knew they've played, they've won. Someone rode the Tour de France and they've won it and they're now coming along telling you how to ride a bike. Someone's won the grand final and now they're telling you how to play the game better. Because of the earned respect, there's a whole lot more. And I I think the smart coaches these days have to work out parents, adults, people engaging with young people. Um, You do have positional respect and I think that should be recognised, but there's earned respect. Uh, you can't cash in on your position alone anymore. You need to earn the respect. What about with the the students that you speak with? And I've, I've done a few addresses to um, secondary schools and I must say it's one of the toughest audiences around I find. You stand there and look up and there's all of these 12, 13, 14, 15 plus year olds there. They're, uh, they're a tough audience together. But you do that all the time. That's, that's, that's your living. But what's it if you take, say, one or two children out of a, a big group when you do classrooms, et cetera, are they different to when they're in that group? Yeah. In a group, everything is about peer acceptance. So the adolescent, that change thing we talked about from the child through to adult, the average adolescent needs peer acceptance and peer support. Um, you know, they've got to get, you know, the, hence the peer pressure term. They've got to get their friends on side and they've got to know their friends are on side. So for them to answer you honestly has to fly in the face of, but what will my friends think? But if you're talking to them one-on-one, their friends aren't there and they're much more likely to tell you what they actually think. So, you know, listen to both groups, but then weigh it carefully. But how different is it dealing with groups of boys or groups of girls? Do you see... Many differences. <laughs> it's, I, I'm laughing because of the whole, the, the whole gender dysphoria dialogue in our culture and the world, Western world, in the moment, mostly Western world. Uh, yeah, um, one of my greatest heroes in life, a New Zealand lady, passed away a couple of years ago. Her name was Celia Lashley, absolutely brilliant woman. She wrote a book called "He'll Be Okay." I just want to shamelessly give a plug for her book. Brilliant woman. She said rather pragmatically. Um, of course there's a difference between guys and girls. Just walk into the locker room and you can smell it. <laughs> and I, I kind of like the, you know, the reality touch. She's right. You know, I mean, I have two daughters and a son. I can walk into my daughter's bedrooms with their permission and I know I'm in their room. Brave is he who wants to walk into my son's room. <laughs> you know, the other day my wife made the comment, we've got to do something about that, you know, like, you know, and it's not burn the clothings and just, you know, strip the room out and resheet the walls, but that's probably the idea. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a diff- of course there are differences. I, I, I think, I think uh, sex is binary. I think there is absolutely unique differences between the sexes um, and I think gender is where we get the confusion. So what about when you're communicating with groups of boys or groups of girls? Do, do you do things differently at all when you're, say, working with yeah. boys' schools, girls' schools or co-ed schools? Are there different approaches you take? Yeah, I, I, I do. They're subtle, but there are differences. You, you definitely want to, you know, the environment you're in is, is very much, again, understand that unique tribe and then if the tribe is by gender, 
what's the uniqueness of that particular age group and um, ideas, and then figure out how do I best communicate with this group. And I think that's the key. The word here is with, not to. If you speak to them, best of luck. Um, but if you speak with them, you've got a snowball's chance. Is that the same in the workplace then for people who have younger employees? Yeah, I think, you know, they're a generation who um, have an opinion, how well formed it is, we can debate, but they have it, they want to be able to express it because they can in the socials, so therefore how do they express it in real life in the workplace and giving them a chance to do it? Is that might be why they talk about how younger people will have a lot more jobs and say, you know, previous generations are moved from job to job. Is that something that you see through the, you know, the time you spent mm-hmm. with young people around it? Is it that a shift in the way they approach their work? Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I think it, that shift is more personality driven. I think there are some of us who want structure, want routine want predictability and we're going to get a job working in a place where it's safe it's predictable it's known there's givens this is my pay rate this is my hours this is when i clock on when i clock off and there's going to be a lot of us who just like you know we just you know squirrel you know we're constantly looking around for something new we love what's distracting us and we want to try something new all the time and we will spend a lifetime journeying into different places and i don't think they're right or wrong i just think understand the the beast for those who are struggling to connect with this younger generation maybe they've got a son or a daughter grandson granddaughter and they are concerned about what's going to come next for them because it's a generation unlike theirs another sweeping statement here michael but um should they be worried will they be okay (laughs) uh well uh Depends. And, and my answer to that would be, I think, first of all, 80% of a child's worldview is formed by the age of two. What you put into your child from zero to two, after two, you're tinkering with the edges. If when they're in year 11 and they're 16 and you're now trying to put the foundations in place, the horse has bolted. Um, the horse bolted a long time ago. My encouragement to parents who are battling a horse that wants to bolt is your only real answer is your tone of voice um, and hoping whatever you put in place from zero to two sticks. Uh, That's how I would be dealing with that. But tone is everything. Um, And I think as Australians, having a smile helps. You know, work out how to laugh. Uh, the, The grumpy approach just doesn't win many people. Learn how to laugh. I mean, I don't know. How great a Prime Minister was Bob Hawke, I don't know, but the larrikin lad in him resonated with an awful lot of people, Mm. Uh, much more so than maybe Keating who followed him. Mm. Um, And then present Prime Ministers, we we give them cutesy names and nicknames, Mm. ScoMo and all that, Albo, but uh, are they people that you sort of go, I I feel like I can relate to them? Mm. I mean, Hawke had something in that reason. Menzies was a man of his era, uh, but I think... Tone of voice when you parent, followed by that ability to just just smile. Even if your smile is just giving up. So the zero to two age group, you've mentioned that. Yeah. What are the other phases that we should look out for? Uh, psychology is a fascinating term, schemas they call it, but stages, whatever you want to call it. Basically from zero to two, you're going to have about 80%, as we've said, is, is formed in terms of their worldview. 
But from two through to six, you basically the child is fixated on their primary caregiver. Most cases that will be a mother, but not exclusively. But they really sort of focus on who's looking after them the most, who's picking them up, dealing with them, spending their time. Six to 12, they move to the secondary caregiver. And again, not exclusively, but in most cases, that will be dad or a male figure. What is interesting is for boys and girls, they will find a male. So if there's no dad in the home, single mum raising the child, um, whether it's two mums, whatever the framework is, the child will look for males to start figuring out this natural balance. Then, from 12 through to 18, they basically say to the caregivers, love you lots, you've been a great help, but see you later. And then they move into peer. Everything is peer-driven. So everything has to be, what are my friends wearing? What's the hairstyle of my friends? What are, the, what are the things that my friends are listening to? What are my friends watching? Scarily, what are my friends doing? And they mimic that because what they're doing is they're acid testing what mum and dad have taught them for the first 12 years. So their testing doesn't really make sense. Which way is up? They're figuring out, is the hot plate really hot? Uh, what do I have to do with all this stuff? Then they say round about 18 to 35, which is a scary span of window, Basically, the average individual starts to figure out, I appreciate my friends, but you've put them into one or two camps. The dickheads who you're going, okay, I need to just keep them under a bit of control. Or the friends who you go, no, I really like that. And you embody that and you basically develop your own autonomous, independent identity Mm. of who I am. What's really scary is if from 18 to 35 you figure it out, life tends to go well. However, if you haven't done the business of figuring out what does this mean for you in your world, you invariably have what they call a midlife crisis. So dad will ditch mum and pick up a younger model. Dad will get rid of the, you know, the, the sedan and buy a sports car or buy a motorbike. Mum starts dressing like the teenage girl. And you, you see this in both parents who can actually start having midlife crises as they're still trying to figure out what's going on. But if you actually look at their behaviour, they're actually behaving like either the 2 to 6 window or the 6 to 12 mm. window. Mm. They're actually mimicking unresolved issues. Mm. And so the, th- the theory is, you know, deal with your issues, start figuring out, which is not you've got to have a perfect life. You know, I always say to people, if your mum's got blue eyes and your dad's got blue eyes, then your mum's Elsa and your dad's an avatar, mm. and that's just weird. It's not about having the perfect family and the perfect group it's about just understanding what are the things that have been dealt you how do you deal with it and then how do you reconcile that and move forward because you either work out how to move forward or you're going to live trapped always in your past always just reliving the past that's why workplaces could be so dynamic can't they when we talk about young people coming in um but maybe there in that 18 to 35 age group, you might have older people who uh, may be in that midlife crisis, as you, as you say. I mean, workplaces can be tough for communication, can't they? Yeah. And, and also the best place. I mean, I, the best thing that happened to me was being 15. I was probably 50 kilos dripping wet with my nail bag on and my hard hat and my boots. So I had to put everything on to get up to 50 kilos. And I was a moron. I was an absolute, just a horrendous kid at school. I walked on the building site surrounded by gorillas in a world pre-OH&S and just suddenly realised if I open my mouth, they'll fill it. And it was the best growing up space. I so thank those builders so much for the way they taught me, you know, this hot plate is hot and if you touch it, you'll burn. 
Whereas at school, I thought I could play the game. So I think the workplace actually offers a great opportunity uh, for people to actually test reality and grow up. So for the phases that you spoke about before, for you, you were age 15 and in that environment that was so different from school and I guess that brought you along in a different way than if you'd still been at school. I was a huge accelerant because I'm 15 years of age, no longer surrounded by 15-year-olds who I'm looking at them trying to figure out which way's up. Suddenly I'm looking at 35-year-olds or 40-year-olds. I remember the first guy I worked with had the nickname Fingers Meldrum and the reason being was on his left hand, he'd cut with an electric saw across his left hand and lost half his thumb, his pointer finger and then only had stumps on the rest of the hand and just like I had to work with this guy and I remember him saying... You know, you hold the wood and I'll cut it. And I was like, no, you hold the wood, I'll cut it. <laughs> I had no idea how to do it, but I wasn't going to do that. Because you realise, actually, you know, these guys have got some life's, life experience and you can learn from them. Michael Knight, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. 